Welcome to another episode of our Live from Pat Conroy Literary Center author interview podcast here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Jonathan Haupt, Executive Director of our Conroy Center right here in Beaufort, South Carolina. And I'm joined this month by not one, not two, but three guests for a panel discussion and readings from a timely, important, thought-provoking, and I'll go so far as to say fantastic anthology recently published by our friends, those literary heroes at Hub City Press in Spartanburg, South Carolina. The book is A Measure of Belonging, 21 Writers of Color on the New American South, which was named a New York Times Book Review notable book and appears on numerous recommended and best of lists of the year. I'm delighted to welcome to the show the editor of A Measure of Belonging, Sunel Barnes, joining us from just up the coast in Charleston. And we also have on our panel this evening two of the contributing writers to the collection, Ivelisse Rodriguez and Natalia Sylvester. Let me tell our listeners just a little bit about each of our very impressive guests before we begin our conversation and readings tonight. Sunel Barnes is a memoirist, essayist, and an educator from Manila, Philippines, and is also the author of Monsoon Mansion, a memoir, and Malaya, Essays on Freedom. She earned her MFA in creative nonfiction from Converse College. Her writing has appeared in BuzzFeed Reader, Catapults, Literary Hub, Hyphen, Panorama, Journal of Intelligent Travel, South 85, among others. Her aforementioned debut memoir was listed as a best nonfiction book of 2018 by Bustle and was nominated for the 2018 Reading Women Nonfiction Award. She was also the 2018-2019 Writer-in-Residence at the Halsey Institute for Contemporary Art, one of the great cultural gems in Charleston, where she lives. Ivelisse Rodriguez's debut short story collection, Love War Stories, is a 2019 Penn Faulkner finalist and a 2018 Forward Reviews Indies finalist, originally from Arecibo, Puerto Rico. She has published fiction in the Boston Review, All About Skin, short fiction by women of color, Obsidian, Quelly, and Bilingual Review. She was also senior fiction editor at Quelly. Ivelisse earned her MFA in creative writing from Emerson College and a PhD in English creative writing from the University of Illinois at Chicago. And I understand she's now working on a novel as well. And, and Natalia Sylvester is the author of two novels for adults, Chasing the Sun and Everyone Knows You Go Home, which won an International Latino Book Award and the Jesse H. Jones Awards for Best Work of Fiction from the Texas Institute of Letters, and was also named a Best Book of 2018 by Real Simple Magazine. Running, her debut novel for young adults, is a 2020 Junior Library Guild selection. Born in Lima, Peru, Natalia grew up in Florida and Texas and earned her BFA in creative writing from the University of Miami. Her essays have appeared in the New York Times, Bustle, Catapult, Electric Literature, Latina Magazine, McSweeney's, and the Austin American Statesman. So welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us here on Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center podcast. And congratulations for all of the acclaim and fantastic reviews and reader responses you've been getting to A Measure of Belonging. Thank you so much, Jonathan. We um, are definitely excited to be on air again. Um, talking about this book and just coming together again. Um, it's cold here in Charleston, surprisingly, so it's nice to have um, this kind of company tonight. 
Well, so now uh, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about the origins of the collection, where the idea came from, and, and what went into gathering these remarkable 21 writers together and, and getting them to share their stories in this way. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that this book came out this year, of course, you know, as we're in the middle of overlapping crises, and what brought me to the South originally a decade ago um, more than a decade ago now, really, um, was another crisis, which was, you know, the recession. And I left New York City because my then-boyfriend, now-husband, um, could only find a job here, and we could really only afford rent here in the Southeast. And, um, you know, one of the jobs he was offered, which he eventually accepted, was at um, – let's just say a Charleston institution and um, at the welcome dinner um, to which, you know, partners and spouses and families were invited. uh, I met someone who was not so much, you know, the welcoming person I was hoping to meet at a quote unquote welcome dinner. Um, I, always get nervous going on these interviews because just like at that dinner, I just don't have like a filter when I talk. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I was an audiobook reader. Um, so I can like modulate my voice and all that, but I cannot, and I can edit on paper, but I can't edit what I say. But this, this person, this woman asked me, you know, how do you like it here? And I could not lie. Like even, even a, you know, a, a pro- professional setting like that, I couldn't lie. And I, I said, you know, I love the beaches. I love downtown. It's so pretty. I love that it's warm and I don't have to deal with snow anymore. Um, and then I went on and said all the things that I didn't like and um, all the things that stuck out to me upon moving here and her response was, you know, honey, no one asked you to come here. And as an emerging writer then, I just thought, okay, do I turn around now? Do I go back to New York? Do I, um, you know, just just wing it there and try to, try to get published there? Or do I try to make space here where it seems like, um, people like me or people who think like me or believe like me are getting squeezed out of spaces. And so I just held on to that thought and when the right opportunity came and when I felt like I had the proper skill set to put an anthology together, um, I did it. <laughs> um, I think I think it was a terrifying thought, which is why I liked it. And and here we are. <laughs> here we are indeed with a, a remarkable, well-received book as well. How did you find your way to Hub City Press? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Actually, um, so I went to, I, I got my, my MFA from Converse College, which is in Spartanburg, South Carolina, which is where my husband grew up. And I chose to get my MFA there because 
as a young mom at the time, the only way I could still pursue writing was, one, have someone outside of our household give me deadlines and give me structure, and two, um, pursue something where there was kind of like a built-in childcare system, which were my in-laws. Um, and so uh, the weeks that I had to be on campus, I would leave the baby at my in-laws and, you know, stay at their house. Um, and from there, I just got exposure to um, Spartanburg life and at the program and just around town met, you know, co-founder Betsy Teeter and her husband, um, John Lane, and also attended one of their um, free community workshops, actually. And this was, gosh, I think 2013. Um, and it was a workshop led by then, um, I think, artist in residence, writer in residence, Kali um, Fajardo Anstein, who's now got every award under her belt and who actually um, referred Ivelisse for this um, anthology. So it all just came full circle. But I, I was in that workshop and I stayed in touch with um, everyone I met there, or most people I met there. And I just thought, okay, this, this book has to be Southern made in the way that um, maybe most people don't understand the term Southern made to be. And this has to, you know, involve people and involve spaces that um, are kind of casual setting um, already in my life. You know, a bookstore that I would naturally walk into, uh, a cafe that I would already walk into if I happened to visit my, my in-laws. When you were recruiting for the book, I'm really curious, were you thinking in terms of specific writers that you wanted to work with? including Natalia and Ivelisse, or were you thinking of, of scenarios you wanted people to write about? Let's say, what was, the, what was the process for collecting the essays? It was definitely people first. It was, I would say out of the 21 people that um, contributed essays um, to the anthology, 20 of them were in that original list. And the, the list both in my head and this spreadsheet that I keep um, in my Google Docs app and my phone. Um, but, and the 21st writer came, you know, last minute. Um, and it was Diana Sahas. And she, um, she and I connected through another friend, Zane, who's a novelist. And um, we were actually already in the, almost in the copy editing stage, I believe, when I read Diana's um, essay, and it just had to be, and I begged for it to be included, and I'm glad we did, and I think it, it was the perfect end to, to the book. It, it has a quietness to it and a fullness to it that I think makes for a great end to like a medley of voices. 
indeed. The, the, the arrangement, I think, is wonderful, which is such a difficult part of putting an anthology together to see that it has, you know, for lack of a better term, a heartbeat to it, but this collection certainly does. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, and this is for everyone, certainly, when, when Sunel starts reaching out to writers, what kind of responses did you get, Sunel? What did, what did people say when they found out this book was coming together? What did you say, Natalia and Ivelisse, when, when you were contacted and, and invited to participate? I said yes. This is Ivelisse. I said yes. So I was a little concerned because I'm not a nonfiction writer. Um, and I found it very challenging to write an essay, uh, but Snell was very patient and helped me along. But, um, but when I read some of the other essays, I was like, oh, no, these are pros, you know. And I was just like, <laughs> that, uh, I think that your essay is where it needs to be and it's how it needs to be and it it's actually I keep I, I reading it was like deja vu in that I felt like I was watching someone that I had been that I had met before. Like I, I feel like I had been at the D M V with this woman before and I had <laughs> watched the scenario before and Finally, this story is being told with the depth that it needed to be told. Um, and so, yeah, and so I don't know because I, I was just like, yes, you are an essay. It's like even just now I'm like, no, you are an essay. <laughs> I agree. I, um, this is Natalia, but I agree because I think one of the things that I love about um, – one of the things that when I really uh, connect to a piece of writing, it's because it's pointing out something that's very everyday, but really just transcends, transcends and captures like such powerful truths. And I felt that way about your essay that he's like, it's just, I mean, you're at a DMV. Can we get any more mundane and everyday? And, and <laughs> like, than that, like those are moments that nobody really wants to be in. Right. Like, like I actually used an example of, the, of a DMV in an exercise once recently um, because I was talking about the ways the extraordinary and the ordinary can, um, you know, overlap. And my most ordinary, my first thought to think about like a mundane everyday moment that no one really wants to be in is the DMV. But you you brought you really did that flip, which is to say, here's a moment so many overlook and just want to get over with. But let's really examine this and see where it has these really lasting um, repercussions that are pulling not only from a long history but also can have repercussions in the future. Um, mm-hmm. And then just the ways we walk through the world, how we self-identify, how we're seen. Um, so I just really loved your essay. Um, and. To answer the question, though, about um, what – so I also immediately said yes when Sunel asked me um, to – like, I knew I wanted to do it, but I had questions because I was really, like, not sure. At first, I remember feeling kind of nervous, too, like, will I have anything to bring to this topic? Um, and it's interesting because we went – we had this email exchange, and I actually pulled it up uh, because I remember there was one thing she said that really – um, that she wrote me that, that really just made me feel like, okay, I really want to be, I really want to write about this because she kept talking about the idea of place and how important it is in this anthology. And she said, the point of it in a word is charting. 
The project is an exercise in not just map making, but in drawing us into the parameters of the region and to redefine who is considered a Southern writer, even more specifically, who is considered to be of the region or an expert on the region at such a politically and socially trying time. And I could really feel that, like I, you know, being from um, both Texas and Florida, I feel like these are states that very quickly, um, we have very um, almost stereotypical things that come to mind when people say like, what is a Texas narrative? Who gets to be Floridian? You know, the, who, like we have the whole, even the meme of Florida man, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> there are so many identities attached to our places, but oftentimes I felt left out of those ide- or, or, or of the place as if somehow I couldn't really be of it just because um, what brought me there might, you know, my root, my past and my roots, roots were different. Um, so I just really connected to this idea of, of us writing ourselves into it, of kind of, you know, redrawing that map, so to say. I love that you pulled that up because I forgot that I wrote that. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> but now that, that I, I, but now that you've read it, I remember exactly where I was and 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 why I needed to say that to you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the best thing about this whole process is that, like Jonathan, you were saying, you know, there's such flow and um, to the arrangement of it and, um, you know, there's a harmony to it. And that, I think, I mean, any person who's edited an anthology or collection will tell you most times it's a nightmare and like a logistical nightmare of sorts. And it hasn't been that way for, for this project because I think the writers that contributed to it, that were, um, you know, kind enough to be a part of it, already are in conversation in real life, whether they know it or not, whether it's in direct conversation or it's a dialogue between the pieces that they've put out there, you know, the past year or the past five years. Um, everyone is doing their part in advancing the conversation, um, the many conversations um, in the larger culture and in the culture of the South and in the culture of, you know, being a literary artist of color or um, of a second, third, fourth, fifth culture. And I think, I think that, you know, lent itself to this harmony, to this, to this very fluid flow. And, you know, the things that we say at these interviews and the things that, that, you know, have, have arrived at the page, I think they've all arrived there very naturally because these are things that we've had to say to each other um, in mundane moments, mm-hmm. but but with so much at stake, you know. Um, I, 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 I wrote that email, I, I think, I'm pretty sure, just right after walking my dog, after an encounter probably <laughs> that, you know, probably wasn't the best kind of encounter to have in your own neighborhood. And, 
Yeah, and I, and I think, again, like the, what Natalia was saying about within the mundane. It's, yeah, uh, you say it, you make a, a wonderful argument for the existence of the book and also the way in which it can be read and, and utilized. It is, uh, certainly to my reading as well, a conversation, not just a conversation among the writers, but an invitation to join the conversation for the readers. So, and that's a topic I want to circle back around to, but I've asked, sort of give our listeners a chance to actually hear these essays, to actually hear these words in your voices. I've asked if you at all would participate in a, a brief reading from your respective pieces. So let's do that at this point, and then we'll circle back around to our conversation. So who wants to start? Sunil, you want to go first from the introduction? Yes, I would love to. Um, thank you so much. Uh, this is from my introduction, um, and I'll start almost a third of the way through. So how do you like it here? She said. I told her that I loved the weather, the beaches, and historic downtown. But the part of me that had pursued a degree in journalism and literature and was determined to practice what I was taught told her the whole truth. Remembering how insular the city felt and how I stuck out without having to try, I said, but there are definitely things I would change. Honey, nobody asked you to move here, the woman said. And that was all. She finished her meal, pushed her chair back, slapped her cloth napkin on the table, left and never spoke to me again in the years that her husband shared a place of work. It was not that I wanted or needed to be asked to come somewhere or be a part of something. It was that I was told to my face at a welcome dinner by someone who could have been more than a stranger that I was not, in fact, invited. The dismissal I felt that night would be felt again throughout the decade I've spent in the South. In these 10 years, I have had interactions, been privy to conversations, and encountered institutions, tangible and not, that could have led me to believe that my former employers, friends, relatives, teachers, and mentors told me way back when. There's nothing for you there. You're going to turn right back around. I haven't turned back around. Instead, I've committed myself to making this place as big as it actually is, because small is so 10 years ago. Small is that woman who called me honey. Small is the South that saved its best smiles, best hails, and best resources to perpetuate a cultural homogeneity. And smaller are the books about this region that refuse to acknowledge and celebrate the voices and narratives of honey me, honey she, honey he, honey they, and honey you. And no, there is not nothing for me here. And there is not nothing for other people of color. There's not nothing for readers like you. There is this book, this anthology. There are the established and emerging writers herein who not only have, but share. While their stories and styles differ, perhaps more so than even I anticipated, the truth they share is that, like most in their generation, they never bought into the lie that they did not belong here. These essayists know how to take up space and make space. This is a collection of stories that say, honey, you come right here and sit up next to me. In Minda Honey's essay, she asks us to, write up, to sit right up next to her on a stoop and listen to tales of generational hurt and hope. 
Andrew Carnegie Medaliski, C. Lehman, invites us to step into a recording studio in the mind of a black man in Mississippi. Christina Cleveland asks us to hear conversations in academia and on Southeastern college sports. Joy Priest swings open her car door, takes us for a ride in her cuddy, turns up the volume on her radio and makes us feel all the time she's felt young and all the time she's felt so old. Here is here. When that woman said that nobody asked me to come here, I decided that every one of my projects thereafter would be an invitation for other people of color to come, to be visible, to thrive here. Each one of these essays, then, is an invitation to step into power and to empower an RSVP to, honey, I invite you to be here and tell me your story. My hope is that reading this book will activate you to make similar definitive choices wherever and whoever you are, so that, as Tony Jensen writes, this place would be a we rather than an it, that we all might feel a measure of belonging. Thank you, Sunil. It's a beautiful, powerful, well-written introduction. Thank you so much. And I think quite a lot about, uh, about the notion of making it big, about making the mm. South big, making it making it a we and not an it, uh, as you say, mm. as you quote. So let's continue making it a we by having someone else read as well. Ivelisse, would you like to go next? Sure. Um, my essay is titled entitled White, Other, and Black. Oh, wait, I'm not white, I said, partially amused. After all, I was stating the obvious to the woman at the DMV who had me verify my license and voter registration information. Isn't there a Hispanic Latino category? I asked, even though that seemed like another silly thing to say. I mean, there had to be Hispanic slash Latino person of Cuban, Mexican, Puerto Rican, South or Central American, or other Spanish culture or origin, regardless of race. Box to check off. No, she said. No? No, she, she reaffirmed. My mother had gone to the DMV the day before in Clayton, North Carolina, and hadn't mentioned this racial ethnic conundrum. And partly due to my exaggerated stereotypes of the South, I believed the woman at the DMV and thought, well, this is the South. Wait, so what does the other Latinos pick, I asked, genuinely curious. She leaned forward and said in a hushed, conspiratorial tone, they usually pick white. What? Really? I was stunned and perplexed by this admission. In terms of Latinos in North Carolina, they're mostly, they are mostly Mexican or Mexican-American, and not the blue-eyed, blonde-haired Mexicans of telenovelas, so definitely not white, but not black either. I assume she marked white by accident, but she had checked it off on purpose based on past experience. Yet I was so curious as to why she defaulted to white versus black when she looked at me. I had grown up my whole life with a sensibility that I am a dark-skinned Puerto Rican. Where I grew up in Holyoke, Massachusetts, that was one of two identifiers for Puerto Ricans. The other was light-skinned, and no Puerto Rican would ever call me the latter. But I was in North Carolina now, and while there are some Puerto Ricans and Dominicans here 
we don't have large enough populations or lengthy histories in the region that would allow us to be easily recognizable or identifiable. So maybe it was reasonable that Latinxes, especially Caribbean Latinxes, a multiracial group of people who normally define themselves as a mix of indigenous, African, and Spanish ancestry, would perplex somebody. We come in a thousand colors and configurations of hair texture and facial features. My mother is frequently mistaken for Filipino. My sister is usually assumed to be African-American. Depending upon where I am or how I wear my hair, I've been asked if I'm Dominican, Cape Verdean, Cuban, or Indian. These were all reasonable assumptions, though. White, however, was really far-fetched and out of the realm of possibility. And I'm just jumping to the end of the essay. The woman at the DMV was flustered. But if your information says you're black when you go vote, then they're going to think you are black, she said as she rubbed her skin. African-American, I asked. She nodded. Ah, so here was her real issue. Because we were in the South, black solely meant African-American. I was in a place where blackness had a significant history that was tied to centuries of slavery, Jim Crow, lynching, and to a specific group of black people who eventually became African-American. My previous assumption that my blackness was obvious was in some ways incorrect. Not only because of the dearth of history and community of Puerto Ricans in the South, because here, black historically equaled African-American. So the woman at the DMV assumed I was not African-American, therefore not black. What ensued was an engaging conversation about our different perceptions of blackness. When I think black, I think about a reference to color that is open to use for anyone from the African diaspora. After studying blackness in the U.S., the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, and Brazil, I didn't equate blackness with a specific group of people. And after living in New York City and the Northeast, being black did not mean you were necessarily African-American. It could be, but it wasn't the only possible option at the other end of the equal sign. Instead, some are all Panamanians, Jamaicans, Haitians, Nigerians, Colombians, Puerto Ricans, and a multitude of people from even more nations could be described as black. But a black wholly dissociated from its significance here in the U.S. because the meaning of blackness is not fixed across the globe. It is a misnomer to assume that everyone who is black is African American. After I pled my case to the woman at the DMV, she reprinted the form and finally put black down. While black wasn't the whole story, as it didn't convey my history and my people, it was as close as I was going to get that day at the DMV. Thank you. It it, it is, uh, I will simply echo what has been said earlier in our conversation. It is a powerfully rendered essay. Uh, And it does what, uh, it's a good model of how to write an essay on top of everything else that it does. Shannon Ravenel, one of the editors uh, best known for her work at Algonquin Books, once said of short stories, of essays, of short form prose, 
in general that the goal should always be the end reaches back and in her words kisses the beginning uh, which mm. it does there's a, a wonderful return to the beginning at the end as well but uh, it's and more than that, I think it, it does such a wonderful job of exploring the notion of blackness and taking issue with the idea that in, in the South and unfortunately in much of the country, topics of race relations are always bifurcated along lines of black and white and, and not inclusive beyond that, not even inclusive to the point of taking a moment to understand what those categories might include above and beyond the more obvious choices. Thank you for reading from that. Natalia, would you do us the honor of reading from your essay as well? Yeah, thank you. Um, So I'm going to read um, an excerpt from my essay. It's called Dysplasia, and it deals with um, my experience having been born and um, lived my whole life with hip dysplasia. Because, um, you know, as we were talking about earlier when Sonella and I started discussing place. Um, I really had always thought of place through the lens of my experiences as an immigrant. Um, but in, at this time, I was also thinking about it a lot in terms of just my own experience of place and displacement in my body, um, having a condition that's all about like being out of, out of alignment within your joints and your bones. And so, um, yeah, so that's really where this came from. The first words I ever spoke in English were not mine. I was four and my family hadn't even been in the U.S. a year when my mom took me to see an orthopedic surgeon at Miami Children's Hospital. On the drive over, she handed me a silver figurine, no taller than a can of Coke. It was sculpted in the shape of a yama, or perhaps it was a cathedral. I know with certainty it was one of these two because in Peru, these are typical gifts, small tokens given as if to say, here is a part of us and our culture. Repeat after me, my mother said. This is for you, Dr. King. This is for you, Dr. King. Again and again until I committed the words to memory, until they were sounds I could sing without understanding them. I practiced my piece with arms outstretched, both hands holding my offering as if it were a heavy stone rather than thin sheets of precious metal. I was born with a problem on my left hip. Throughout childhood, this was the language I had to explain it. Because how do you tell a one, two, three, six-year-old why her body is always needing to be fixed, why the surgeries come one after the other after the other without admitting that something is just slightly off? The way the doctors explained it was by balling one hand into a fist and covering it with the other with a healthy hip in its socket. Then they'd slide the fist under their palm and fingers until the fingertips were barely holding onto the knuckles, until it looked like at any moment the head of the hip could just slip out of its socket. This was my hip. Solving the problem of its displacement meant braces and casts, screws and hardware drilled in and out of my femur, crutches and walkers and wheelchairs. You'll be able to feel the rain coming, is what Dr. King once told me. But being six, I didn't understand what he meant that arthritic joints ache when the barometric pressure in the air shifts before the rain falls, that people can sense the weather in their bodies sometimes. Instead, I pictured it as a superpower, my body triumphing over the weather report. I couldn't have imagined that what he described with such glee that I practically wished for it was pain, 
In the end, it didn't matter because I never felt the rain. Or perhaps I always felt it and I didn't know the difference. Nearly every day in Miami, it showers. And when it doesn't, the humidity looms, a thick coat over your skin. My body didn't have a barometer for what was a normal amount of discomfort. Two years ago, my mom gave me a plastic bag filled with old pictures of my father's side of my family and my first Peruvian passport. In it, I may be six months old. The black and white square picture is a study in contrast. White, overflowing dress, black, wide eyes. Flipping through it, I expected to find evidence of when we first moved to the United States in 1988. Instead, I found a stamp from 1985. This is the first office visit for the seven-month-old, it said. Excuse me. This is the first office visit for the seven-month-old female seen at this time for evaluation concerning the lower extremities. You came here before we moved, I asked. You and I did, said my mom, to see Dr. King. Before we came for a better life, we came hoping for better care. Later, I would find Dr. King's notes in a manila folder my mother gave me, labeled Natalia's medical records in pencil. Pages of operative reports, post-op reports, and radiology consultations have slowly begun to fill in the gaps between my own knowledge of my body and my doctor's. On a treatment record dated March 1st, 1994, the day my cast was removed six weeks post-surgery, my physical therapist wrote, the patient is very anxious slash hesitant concerning left knee movements. They recorded status. I remember the ache. Minutes after my cast was removed, with my legs stiff and atrophied, my knee unable to bend from the position it held for the last 42 days, an x-ray technician placed me on a metal table and pushed my leg taut against the cold surface without even a hint of a warning. That one forced movement caused the greatest pain I'd ever felt before and since then. I kept quiet through all of it, afraid to give voice to the pain or betray the silent plea of my first English words in this country. This is for you, Dr. King. Here is a part of me. Take good care of it. Be kind. I'll just stop there. Thank you, Natalia. This, too, is a beautiful essay, forthright, honest, uh, confessional in some ways. What what shines through in this essay and and the others that have been shared on on the show, and indeed all of them, is such a strong sense of the writer. And that is what makes me uh, circle back to what Sunel said earlier about the book really feeling like a conversation, like these aren't these are people and not just words on a page. So uh, I want to mention another person uh, who has been on the show before, and this will lead me to a question I, I want to ask all three of you. Earlier this summer on the show, I had uh, Anthony Grooms, Tony Grooms uh, from just outside of Atlanta, talking about his historical novel, The Vain Conversation, which uh, is is about, in, among other things, a historical lynching in rural Georgia. And at that time, when Tony was on the show, Black Lives Matters demonstrations were uh, were in the forefront of everyone's mind. They were they were reaching a, a a powerful moment in our national consciousness. And Tony and I were talking about that. And he said, well, uh, when when problems like this unfold, when the the underpinnings of our society are called into question, people of color protest 
and white people start book clubs. And what Tony was also speaking about is at that point, all publications all over social media were all of these anti-racist uh, reading lists and, and um, guidelines sort of, uh, and, and we were seeing books like that shoot to the top of the New York Times book list. And that's, this is my question ultimately. Your book, this book, A Measure of Belonging, has been called thought-provoking any number of times, a wonderful adjectives and important adjectives, but thought in isolation doesn't always lead to action. In the absence of action, we don't experience change. So what do you as writers, as the editor of this book, hope will come from this collection, hope, hope will come from sharing these stories that will in fact lead to action and change? Yeah, that's a great, um, question and that's a great um, conversation, you know, from earlier this year to bring into this one, I think because they're not they're not separate at all. And um, I can attest to the frustration that I think many um, contributors to American culture as artists and academics and poets and essayists and you know, even painters and sculptors. I remember um, the week of the elections, I actually just wrote about this, transcribing it from my journal entry from that day, um, how many messages I got um, that week from other creatives, um, mostly of color, about... The, the frustration we were feeling, I remember one of them was, okay, I guess everyone bought our books, but then did they read them? You know, or I guess maybe they did read them. And then someone else said, I guess they read them, and then they, like, dashed it away. Um, but I remember there was this, for, for a moment, there was kind of like this twilight zone where everything felt jarring and that, man, we've, we've given our blood, sweat, and tears into our work and into the best, you know, ways we know how to kindle and stoke a fire and start movements and start dialogues and yet and yet and yet and yet. And from that, I realized, let's go back to First and foremost, we're here to take care of ourselves first. Um, we're, we're here to experience our joy first. We're here because, you know, our joy is our resistance. And um, self-care, as Audrey Lord says, <laughs> self-care is a self-proclamation. Self-care is, is resistance. And 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 for many of us, we've given a lot this past year. We've given a lot this past decade. And I think now, for us, our action should be to take care of ourselves. Um, and if, if necessary, to divest some of our emotional, mental, and creative resources and fill up our reserves again. Um, because that, that really is one of the best ways to resist, right, um, is to nourish um, ourselves. And then 
or that perceived gaze, that that perceived white gaze, that whether we mean to or not, we end up fighting for, we end up creating for, or speaking to. My hope is that this is not just another book on on their TBR, on their to-be-read pile, you know, but they understand this is the heart of hearts of people. Like, that's that's why I chose for this to be a collection of essays and not stories. Um, This is, these are people's hearts of hearts. And like you said, Jonathan, um, you were quoting someone earlier, um, an editor at Algonquin Books, you know, my version of that is verse reverses, prose proceeds, but the essay mm-hmm. does both. And like, you know, I, th- I believe you said, kiss is the beginning, right? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I don't know. I, there, for, for me, the only people I want to care for right now are the very people that this book represents and the, this the people that gave to this book. Um, my call to action is there, and my call to action is to them. Um, that's always where I think my voice will be the loudest and where my reserves will be um, invested. And everyone else is figuring it out on your own. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I think that change is very slow. I think revolution is slow. And I think that people sort of are only afforded small glimpse of um, a rev- the revolution that sort of needs to take place. Um, so, for example, when I was in undergrad, we were reading uh, uh, The Lays of Marie de France. And I remember it was an early feminist text and, you know, somebody said, well, she didn't go far enough, you know, and it's sort of like, well, this is the beginning of, you know, and even though it seems like we've been at this beginning for a very long time, um, again, I think revolution is just slow. And I think it really does start, though, with somebody opening their mind and seeing um, new things. And I think what we also need to understand is that people are also going to have to change the way those, they see the world. Um, and so I think that's part of the slowness of it. So for example, with my essay, if someone's African-American, they may not want to think about um, blackness um, as belonging to other people, the African diaspora, just because um that's not, you know, the way that it's been constructed um, in this society. And so it would, you know, have to take a lot to sort of like flip your mind and sort of think about it in that particular way. So um, so there is this engagement with, um, you know, what people are willing to sort of give up um, just to sort of see the world in a different way. So that is, you know, that will take a very long time. 
Yeah, I mm-hmm. I agree so much um, with what you both um, are saying, and especially, Sunil, something you said reminded me of. Um, I I was on I was listening to a panel earlier this summer that included um, the Uruguayan writer Carolina de Robertis, and um, she wrote this really beautiful book called Cantoras. Um, that's all about um, like five lesbian women over the course of the Uruguayan dictatorship and the ways that they come together over several years and form like their own community. Um, and she said, um, she said, there is no safe. Safe is what we make with our own hands. And I keep thinking about that every time people ask a question like this, because, you know, when I've, I've, I've had a lot of white readers often tell me about my writing that it helps them empathize and, or that, or, and then people often love to say that we read fiction to create empathy, but even that phrasing um, or nonfiction as well, but even that phrasing is implying um, just by the very definition of the word empathy, right? Which is that you have to feel what others feel. You're othering one experience and default and creating another one as the default. And so you're centering the white writer, as if what's most important is for them to feel what anyone outside of their own experience feels, um, without asking, yeah, but what what do, you know, what does everyone like? What do we all need? You know, what do we need from each other? Um, not just from, um, you know, the like the white gaze, um, and and so I think that when I write, I think I, I think of that a lot. Um, and I agree with Sunel that I want to um, really create that safe space for our own community because I think that, and you know, and it's 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 great if other if, if people read like of course I want anyone to read my book, but who it's written for and who it's and who it reaches are two different things, um, and and it does have to happen like you Ali says that sometimes that change will happen slowly, but it can't stop at empathy like empathy is an emotion and it's not an action. Um, And what we do, and I think what's so important for us is when we're writing unapologetically for each other, um, is that, you know, we're telling each other like, yeah, this is, this is ours too, you know, and, and we don't have to explain ourselves um, to prove ourselves worthy of, of belonging anywhere. We simply do. We can make that the default. Um, And, if when we do that unapologetically, I think that's where that makes that change so much more powerful when it does happen in the white gaze, um, because there's so much that has to happen first in the imagination of people. Um, when you have, um, you know, like my essay deals a lot with like in the medical world, you know, the way that even me as a small child, as an immigrant child was seen as other and, um, maybe was not perceived to have the same amount of emotions or pain. And I think so much about how we still see that happening today. You know, we see kids in like brown children in cages and people don't seem to care as much. Um, but you can't imagine like a white child being separated from their parents for two minutes at a supermarket. Um, we see that in the ways that black children are vilified every day and, 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 and killed brutally by police. And yet the suffering and the injustice of that um, is not somehow taken as seriously by those in power um, as if it were a white child. Um, 
And those are things that that's change that has to happen in a person's imagination. It's like, why see one body as a threat or as less human? Um, but again, to me, that's something that if it, if it happens, great, but I don't hold my breath for it because I would rather put all of that breath, all of that energy and life into um, creating what, um, what Carolina Roberti's calls, yeah, like that space among each other. And then um, hopefully, you know, others can join us in that. Um, but I think it matters who is creating that. That was so perfectly said. It really was powerfully spoken. I want to go, um, we only have about six minutes left. An hour goes very quickly, unfortunately. And I want to go very quickly in one direction and then, well, let's just do the second thing. I I think, you know, in in the spirit of Natalia's uh, comments, let's try and honor the creative work that the three of you are doing right now. So this will be our, probably our last question. But what are the three of you working on coming out of this project? What's next for each of you? Um, I'll let you you go first. I'm working on a novel, and it's called The Last Salsa Singer. And it's about 70s era's um, salsa band in Puerto Rico. And it is about... um, this boy, Richie, who loves this girl, Lucy, and um, he's going to save her when she becomes pregnant by somebody else. Um, but his best friend, um, Chael, is appalled by this, and Chael is the salsa singer, and so what happens is they sing this song called La Palomita, and so they sing this song and they embarrass Richie and, and Lucy at this concert because the song is about the insipid love between Richie and uh, Lucy. And um, the song works in that Lucy decides to leave Puerto Rico and she goes off to New York. Um, And Chael thinks, yay, she's out of our lives. But then the song, La Palomita, becomes their greatest hit. So they're forever forced to play it. And so it's about, you know, really gendered aspects of salsa. If you ever see a salsa band, it's mostly men, or usually all men. And so here we see how this girl is vilified, but in the end she sort of upends their lives because, in a sense, she takes away Chael's legacy from him because he doesn't want to be associated with the song, but he's forever tied to it now. Does that have a publication date, or is it still in process? Oh, I'm still working on it. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds sounds amazing. It does. sounds like quite the undertaking, something to look forward to. Natalia, what about you? Uh, Running is nearly out, but uh, doing well from what I've seen. But what else might be going on? Thank you. Yeah, um, I'm actually super excited to share about my next book because – and I think I've told Sunil this, but because this essay was really the first time I was writing about my dysplasia in, like, in any real depth, it kind of like felt like it was opening these floodgates, and suddenly I wanted to really write about it and explore it further. So my next book, um, which comes out in spring 2022, um, is about a Peruvian immigrant teenager living in Central Florida 
who has hip dysplasia, and it's all set during a summer in which she's falling in love for the first time and auditioning to become a mermaid at a mermaid attraction, like a theme park um, in Central Florida. And it it's really all about like her her own um, her own request really to feel like she fits in in all the ways that um, that you can imagine, like whether it means fitting into the place she's in, fitting in and accepting her own body, um, feeling that, um, you know, agency of her own body and having to, and allowing herself to let go of any shame associated with it, including that to do with sex, sex sexuality and desire, because it's really just about all the, the ways that we impose so many things on to young women's bodies, um, especially when they're coming from a, a family, um, like like her in this book, like she's uh, she's Peruvian. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot to unpack there, just in terms of um, the cultural and religious expectations. Um, on top of that, those um, having to do with her hip dysplasia, and so I'm just really excited because um, it's also just fun. Like I, I like kind of going back to what Sonal was saying. Like I wanted it to be a book that's also about her own joy, and that's really where the mermaids come in. Um, it's, and and, the, and her first love and all these things, like she can have all those things. There's not one thing that defines us. And so um, it doesn't have a title yet, but that's what I'm working on. Is this a, a YA book or an adult book? It's a YA book. It sounds fantastic. That's something else to yeah. look forward to. And I love the mermaid angle. That sounds <laughs> very compelling. So now we've got about a minute and 30 seconds left. So, Tell us, if you can, what's, uh, what you've got happening. Yeah, I'm all smiles over here listening to um, both of these stories or these um, novel descriptions, and I'm just really excited about both of these. Um, I've been working on a year-end essay for Catapult. Um, speaking of joy, uh, this is an essay to close the year, this this interesting god-awful year. Um, <laughs> with joy and closing it, remembering all the joy we had despite everything that happened, including a cyber crime um, that really, really wiped us clean of everything um, at the beginning of the year. Uh, so it's about play and it's about how the essay form is a way to play and how the essay form has been a way for me to retrieve and reclaim that joy for myself. Um, so I'm very happy that this is something that's coming out very soon, perhaps in a few days or weeks. Um, but the bigger project that's looming over my head, really, in my desk, is a nonfiction narrative book um, that will require me to go back to the Philippines after 20 years of not being there um, to investigate the Philippine water crisis. Uh, so a lot of, uh, really, this book will bridge my personal history of having grown up without um, access to clean water and now my work as a journalist and um, creative nonfiction writer and also my work at an NGO. Uh, so this, this, I think, will be in my um, recent application for a fellowship. I said, this might be my last book. Like, I think this is going to take it all out of me uh, in a good way, in a, in a very good way. And so... Um, I feel like all my projects get just keep getting scarier. Um, and I say that with a smile. I wish you could see me right now, but I say that with a smile. Um, 
Well, well, I love the idea of ending the year with a note of joy, and that's uh, what we'll do for this interview as well, joy and gratitude. Thank you all so much for joining us here on Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center. Again, the book is A Measure of Belonging, published by Hub City Press and available in bookstores everywhere. Thank you all so much. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.